to Dance Cinema Conversation with Lux Eterna, in which she takes us through the making of Oranox Anima, a short Buto and Bodivero-inspired dance film shot on the dunes of Anna Bay in Port Stephens, Australia. Lux and I sat together to talk about the inspiration behind the making of Oranox Anima and how, in general, ideas come to her. I was also curious to know how she deals with liminal in-between spaces, when one idea is completed, but the new one only yet to be born. Oranox Anima was informed by Lux's practice of Bodhiveda, a dance and movement technique that encourages sensitivity to the space and the environment, so that the moving body gives itself to the elements, and the movement comes as a gentle impulse from within. The strong wind blowing on the location on the day of shooting was thus replicated in the dancing bodies that carried the wind in them. Shot in only one day, Oranox Anima is inspired by the idea of overland travel, of seeking and searching, and this journey serves as a metaphor for cyclical nature of life, in which decay and renewal superimpose to create a liminal place of passage into something yet foreign and new. An example of a work of beauty, Oranox Anima, makes us think deeper existential questions. And in this podcast, Lux and I contemplate the value of beauty, harmony and slowing down in our modern, entertainment-saturated lives. We also speak about Lux's interest in embodied and non-wearistic gaze in which the camera, and subsequently the viewer, is in a more experiential, subjective, and connected experience to that which is seen. This peripheral vision in Lux's view allows us to step back from the action and into our own body, so we share the visceral experience of the dancing bodies on screen. So I'm always interested in how ideas pop to the creative minds and what is that moment of the birth of a project. When did you start thinking about making this film and what were some of the initial thoughts that came to you? This was a bit of a process leading up to Oranox Anima. It wasn't just an idea and an action follow suit. I was given a residency up at Port Stephens. And so part of that residency, I went and did a recce. So I went to have a look around at the location, explore the landscape, and that's where I found the the sand dunes of Anna Bay. I spent a couple of days there, just walking around, meditating, having my camera and just rolling, being with the elements, just allowing the wind to move around through me. I started collecting all the bird bones that I found and categorizing them and putting them into different collections. I was really interested in the bones and the remnants of death and so I started photographing them and making still photographs which I put together for an exhibition proposal and I had my first solo exhibition in a very long time. I felt like I needed something to accompany these still images. I wasn't really happy with the still images just on their own. For me, the whole experience of being in those dunes, it was an experience and I wanted to bring that into the gallery. I was doing a lot of body weather dance training at the time. So I think even just being out in the dunes in a meditative state was part of that body weather experience of just allowing my body to allow the elements to move me, to make me still, to feel what it's like to go through life and death cycles, etc. So I put an expression out there to my dancing friends 
who trained with me as well and I asked them if they were keen to go out and have an experiment at Dancing in the Dunes and that was where the first part of this yet to be finished trilogy of which Oronox Anamai is the second part is to be continued. It wasn't until I'd made that first video that I realised that there was something there. There was actually something for me more rich than in my photographs. Oranox Anima is the second video in the trilogy. The first one was exhibited in the gallery and then you went back to the site to film Oranox Anima? Exactly. So I had another solo exhibition a year and a half later. I put another production together and this time one more dancer came on board, which I was happy about. Both times we were really at the mercy of the weather and everything kind of happened as it needed to happen. And I think that's part of the body weather practice, to just give yourself over to that. To elements. To the elements, to the space, to, yeah, whatever arises. How many days were you there on the location shooting? Just one. Just one? Yeah, yeah. I wish it could be more. It's something that... I'm hoping to be able to plan better for and fund next time. Ideally, I wanted to spend two to three days with the dancers, one day not doing any filming, just working with the body, working in the, in the elements, in the space, in the environment, and seeing what actually came out of that and debriefing, taking that, scaffolding it and building it, and then going back out on a second day and a third day and seeing where I could actually, where we could all take this. So, yeah, we were just at the mercy of logistics and, and the weather itself too. So the dancers weren't on the site before the actual day of shooting. That was their first interaction with the space. Exactly. And how did you prepare them to that? I think because a lot of us trained together. So we were dancing once a week and training at Body Weather. We do a lot of work with sensitivity, imagination, space. So I was just trusting that that experience was going to drive it. And it remarkably, it, it did quite beautifully. When you originally met with these five women that are part of the film, what were some of the first words or images or descriptions or ideas that you shared with them? It was actually quite, it's quite surprising because, you know, I, you think the work is so <laughs> meditative and spacious, but... The day that we went up, we had really inclement weather and it was, you know, it was ready to storm any second or big clouds came out of nowhere, massive wind came. And it was a matter of just stealing our moments and getting out there and taking the shot and then coming back and having a rest. So windy out there and I was quite away from them with my camera. So... I was actually yelling, even though I was giving them very gentle cues to, to, just, to just kind of carry the wind that was blowing across the dunes, you know, to carry that in their body. Images of decay as well, of overland travel, of seeking, of searching. It's quite reductive now, but it was that post-apocalyptic kind of feel of leaving everything behind and going into another world, which I know it's not ideal because you know, our Indigenous people are going through that every day. So I guess that was just what I had to go through in order to understand it better. But yeah, it was just really working with the elements in the sand dunes and it can be quite austere out there, but trying to find the beauty in that, the beauty in the death and the decaying and the change and saying goodbye and moving to something completely foreign and new. Death, decay, renewal are some of the themes that you generally explore in your practice. It's something I, something I think about quite a lot and I think maybe it's because of my life situation. My parents are very old for where I'm at at my age so I've had to come to terms with their mortality quite earlier in life. I mean, it's all relative but that being a, a major aspect of what I was going through and I still am kind of makes me think about death and the end and the, the non-end <laughs> and what happens to these journeys and then being out in the dunes and collecting the bones and just becoming quite intimate with the cycles of life. For me it just doesn't seem so dark, it seems quite beautiful, it's quite eerie, it just opened up all this space for 
existential contemplations that didn't have to be uncomfortable. So I think I looked to death in order to get closer to, it sounds cliche, but life more. I found the more I meditated on death and, and going, the, I started living my life with a different quality. Is there a reason there are five women in the film? Does the number five signify anything? Uh, no, it doesn't. I would have liked to have eight because that's my lucky number and it's a very matriarchal number. Uh, it was more, again, logistics. So I just wanted to work with these five people at the time and I thought, yep, this works, this number's great. I wanted a bit of asymmetry because the first installation of the trilogy was quite symmetrical with four. And ideally I'd like to grow that chorus of bodies. I'd like to work with however many I can possibly get. Puto and Bodyweather's practice works with images. And one of the things that you have mentioned, for example, are bird bones. Were those the images that the performers and the dancers were trying to assimilate through their bodies and the way they moved? I feel it's almost unconscious. I mean, when you train together quite a lot and you witness each other, it's something that you possibly start picking up on subconsciously or through osmosis. I feel that's one aspect. I also have a love of birds, a personal adoration of birds. In my own imaginative explorations, I probably have tapped into bird-like movements and elements. And out there in the dunes, it's, you know, it is really birds' territory. There's nothing else that comes through those dunes. It's just birds that fly overhead and possibly, you know, scavenge on carcasses of previous fauna. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one, I think. I think there's a lot of mitigating factors and contributing elements to the bird-like elements. And I know in body weather and Bhutto, sometimes we do work with the image of a bird as well. So. In relation to Bhutto and body weather, uh, when we originally met and we spoke about this project, you used the term weathering. Could you tell me what this signifies? What does weathering mean? I think in its technical sense, it's just about just the weathering of what happens to us and any physical object in the natural world, the entropy that occurs. Weathering to me is also, you know, the life journey. It's, it's a part of it. The weathering can inform marks, can inform movements, can inform a richness that gets deeper over time. But in the, the video Aura Nox Anima, it was probably more connected to literally the weather and how it moves us, the elements, how it creates the impulse within us to move, to be. Body weather, as the name suggests, is about the weather of the body. And every day that you wake up, it is its own microclimate. It is its own microcosm of weather that's really specific and you have to learn or you develop an awareness into becoming attuned to what the weather is of that of your body in any given moment in a on a day in any particular environment so it's a sensitivity training talking about sensitivity one other thing that you explore in your practice is haptic visuality which is the way of touching the screen with our eyes so we are in a tactile relationship to the image why are you interested in this and how do you achieve it through your practice? When I went to film school for a bit, I kind of struggled with a lot of the aesthetics and techniques and styles that they were teaching. Things like handheld camera really annoy me because I, I feel quite disconnected from my body. It, I mean, for someone who's probably not so sensitive, that might be a really good way in to feel the action but for me, when there's a lot of action, I need to kind of actually be in my body even more. The eye needs to move into the, the peripheral in order to understand the context of what's going on. I can't just look at one you know, detailed thing and understand it. I need to step back and see everything that's happening in order to feel it and experience it. I also felt from the discourse and dialogue that I had with other students and teachers at film school that there is too much of a focus on all this kind of, you know, close-up focus, tracking, zooming in, follow the action, follow the action. And I actually think it disconnected me from 
what was happening. And I feel film, it does that. It's um, in a lot of videos, it's about sitting back and just checking out. It's not about experiencing really what's happening. It's also kind of connects to my work as a commercial photographer because I did fashion photography for a bit, working with young models and just really wanting to connect with them. I always got them to gaze directly towards me and they, they found that really unusual. I wanted to create a more experiential, subjective and connected experience with the camera and it felt like up until before that or with a lot of other photographers or camera operators that it was about this distancing, it was about this spectatorship or, you know, voyeurism. And, I mean, I have to also go back to John Berger's way of seeing where he talks about, you know, women were meant to be looked at and men did the looking. And so for me it was never about that. Film for me was this living, breathing organism. It was an experience that needed to, to happen and everyone needed to partake in that from performer, camera operator and watcher. When I researched haptic visuality a while ago in my studies, I always thought about it in relation to close-ups when the camera comes close to the body on the screen and I, as a viewer, imagine myself as that body or in proximity with that body. In your film, you choose very wide, long shots and also still camera. How do you relate to that idea, close-up versus long shot, in terms of this haptic visuality and anti-voyeuristic gaze as well? I think there's a place for both. I think it just depends on how the camera is employed, how it's put in proximity to the subject, the way in which it's held. I feel, you know, that could possibly create that hapticity and that intimacy, that physical, visceral intimacy. Those shots could also be juxtaposed with um, something else, a bit more wide angle. But I think it goes back to that point of, for me to feel I need to, my peripheral vision has to be activated. When I'm just seeing one detail, I feel like it's, it's almost like a periscope and I'm looking through just that one tunnel at one very small bit. I mean, that could still work. You know, in the physical realm, if that's all I could see, then my hands would be out there trying to feel my way around. But on the screen, I can't feel on the screen. So for me, I guess I had to come back in order to feel. You mentioned how the dancers commented on this sense of comfort that they felt having a female cinematographer. Could you talk to me a bit more about their experience? When people I work with say things like that to me, it's very warming. It's a very positive thing for me because I am trying to intentionally create an environment where the performers feel extremely relaxed. It needs to be a gentle space in order to create that resonance that I'm hoping for on screen. So, yeah, it's, and they said it was unlike anything else. And I also think it, I was lucky because I had spaciousness, I had time. I wasn't working to a timeline or a particular budget. So there was a bit more freedom for me to just see what comes up. And just always being gentle and mindful of everybody on set is really important because I want them to access that really, I guess, sacred place within them and bring, and bring that elemental aspect to their to their person to their work I think that's where my work came out of is dancers knew that I could dance and I had that kinesthetic awareness of how to move camera with them to capture dance in the best possible way I mean it's still an experiment but yeah it's, it's ongoing investigation which I'm really enjoying this experience that you personally have in dance leads me to the question around embodied mediation state, by which I mean whether your personal experience, your visceral experience, your embodied experience of dance informs the way you think of the projects that you will make, the way you envision them, the way you instruct and guide your performers. 
and understand the process that they go through. You spoke to that a bit, but how important is it to have that background? For me, dance and movement, embodiment, somatic experiences have been vital. I see them intrinsic in everything that I do, including writing, including the 2D work that I do. If I haven't been moving or dancing, there's a massive block for me. It's almost as if I feel my way through something in order to understand it, to create it or articulate it. It's also important for me to understand how to move if I'm filming people who move. I never really thought too deeply about it, but I knew that without moving, without dancing, I knew there was a block somewhere and I couldn't do the work that I really wanted to do. And sometimes I, I think it's very subconscious. I don't intentionally think about it. It's only been recent that I'm starting to break it down and deconstruct it and go, okay, that's, that's what it is, that's what I'm doing. Okay, now I understand a little bit more theoretically about this physical practice, this embodiment and being with the camera. And again, that's been a, a journey into confidence with the camera and probably why I used more static images in the past. When I worked with Catherine Puey, she had a very specific idea that I needed to dance with her really closely. So up until then, it was kind of mid-range and it was about learning a dancer's language so I could actually best support them. And then it became even closer still with Cat Puey. So, yeah. Talking about Kat Puey, Catherine Puey, she is one of your long-term collaborators. Why are these long-term collaborations important to you and what brings two of you together creatively? What brought us together is I just love the way that she moved. <laughs> I met her working as a facilitator for Marina Abramovic when she had her exhibition at Sydney and Catherine was co-facilitating with me. So we got to know each other. I just loved her poise, her grace, her groundedness. I mean, even the way she walked. And I approached her and I asked her if she'd like to join and be on Oranox Anima. And from that, I just, yeah, I fell in love with the way that she moves as well. So it was probably a lot of what I aspired to in my own movement. It was extremely grounded and earthy. Yeah, there was this kind of unctuousness and solidity to her movement, but still a poise and a grace that I really liked. And the long-term aspect, I think this has actually just opened up for me in my life. I've realized that one of my main ingredients that I work with is time. And I'm starting to understand the depth of long-term time, you know, the long durational and long durational, not as in 14 hours, but could be 14 years. I'm really interested in, you know, the years of blood, sweat and tears that might go into everything from friendship to collaboration to artistic pursuits and seeing what comes out the other end. Was there a particular thing that made you aware of this interest in time? I feel it's, a, yeah, it's like a personal experience. This year has been a lot about growing up and taking responsibility and accepting things as they are and major life lessons I've had to accept and <laughs> uh, bow down to and in that personal experience and I guess you know my spiritual meditations I've realized that time is one of my major ingredients you know I w was in my frustration I mean this could have happened 10 years ago why didn't it and I'm like hang on Lux it's this is your journey this is part of how you need to move through life and just accept it and, you know, see if you can find the gold in that vast expanse mm. on the way, you know, so. So it's time and patience. You seem to be referring to patience, to also entrusting yourself, mm. to not rushing. Is that part of that idea of duration to let things happen in their own time very true yeah yeah it's also come up for me this year that i'm a bit of a control freak <laughs> so you know when i want things to happen i make them happen and yeah just i'm opening up to that and also i mean what i'm advocating is about you know slowing down as an act of rebellion in this day and age and i'm really not practicing what i preach 
So it's, it's how you ride that wave with grace. You know, life isn't meant to be a race or a rush. And so I've accepted the, also the fact that my work, which is kind of really slow paced and silent and a bit still, you know, really that should come from those places in my life as well, an acceptance of those places in my life. At the same time as you are interested in meditation, body, visceral, time, slowing down, you're also fascinated with post-human and technology. And this blows my mind because I see them as so opposed, those things. And I would dare to say that most people would, and yet you see them as a pair that can coexist. And you also see technology as something that could assist us in learning how to slow down. Tell me about that. <laughs> the world of contradictions. I can't put my head around it. <laughs> um, I do feel a lot of these ancient embodied practices, such as meditation, somatics, awareness of breath, they are technologies. You know, our, our bodies, our anatomies are technologies that we really are not. In my opinion, we're not going deep into enough of its, its understanding, awareness of it, and what its capacity is. I'm always curious about post and transhuman futures and why we're, you know, authoring these futures with just from a technological or a technologized input. They think the pinnacle of AI is when the AI has consciousness. And I'm thinking, well, that's fantastic. But who's inputting consciousness into humans? You know, we're building all this stuff, but we're not developing ourselves. And I feel that this is where we are becoming subordinate to technology. And it is, it's becoming more powerful than us because we're letting it. You know, I really feel that technology is, is wonderful. We have the scientific technology. We also have the technology in our body and the technology from ancient worlds. And, you know, they really should come together to co-author our futures, not one or the other. I feel that we can use technology to actually help us become more aware humans, more conscious humans. I'll quote another artist who I love. I love his work. His name is George Coote and he works with biofeedback and he, you know, works with code and creating devices that help register signals from the body to help you understand and develop an awareness of what's actually going on on a very acute and sensitive level within your body. So I used his um, Bright Hearts app with a heart monitor and you can start to control the shapes and sounds on the screen with just your breathing awareness. And so I found that this was exactly how I felt technology is meant to be used in order to help us activate, to help us become that superior AI that we're trying to design. Do you see as in the development phase of technology that this development should be done by particular kinds of human consciousness? I would like to see more people come to the table to co-author this post and transhuman futures. I think right now it's very heavily leaning towards the scientific, the, you know, the computer, the technologized world, as opposed to ethically drawing in wisdom from the humanities, linguists, meditators, artists, dancers, sociologists, indigenous tribes as well, because they're so connected to the natural world there's much richness and wisdom that really need to inform how we move into the future. Otherwise, it's just the same construct that we have now with more technology and gadgets. So I'd really like to, that's what I'm hoping to do with this work is challenge that script. One of your dreams is to make <laughs> a sci-fi dance film. <laughs> yeah. It would be fully danced by robots, I assume. So where does the body come in there? <laughs> well, well, yeah, I've been a bit brash, I think, when I say it's a, dan it's a science fiction dance film. When I hear it, it sounds ridiculous. Um, I don't expect it to make sense at this stage. I'm still trying to make sense of it now, but I've been a science fiction fan for a long time and not in the typical science fiction that you don't, you know. I do like some, but I've also appreciated some versions of the science fiction genre. So I think this film will be one of one of those.
types of films and it's trying to tap into and access the wisdom the knowledge the bodies of knowledge the bodies of ancient knowledge that's carried down through many histories many worlds many lifetimes as that technology which i don't know if there are aliens involved might help us connect with them or not connect with them or you know unlock deeper mysteries of what it means to be human alive the universe cosmos these are all ideas are waiting to be written and edited and cut down and thrown away and rehashed so that's the journey but for me i think the basic tenet is the body there's much wisdom there's much magic in the body and i know we're all very different and some people move through life very cognitively or you know auditorily or but for me i mean i was a very imaginative child and it's coming into embodiment has also been part of my life journey and i've been able to shift so much through the body i've been able to heal so much through the body speaking about imagination another thing that we teased about a bit in our previous conversations is this idea that we have moved into the era of images but away from imagination you said something interesting in relation to that you said i see imagination as type of technology mm. um i mean that does also connect to buto buto uses imagination and sensitivity as a type of i would say it's a type of technology the reason i brought that up about imagination and i probably referenced an academic called Brad Evans and that's where i stumbled across that and it connected me to my body with a practice when i use imagination and he said right now we're living in the age of the image and i agree we're saturated by images on social media on internet every everything has this kind of visual currency visual literacy and the images all look the same and they're quite they're quite dire you know we're not learning to actually generate images from within ourselves from within those deep i guess subconscious impulses we're not able to imagine new worlds new stories and he talks about that as being really vital to getting us out of this we can feel it now with what's going on with eco anxiety and everything we're just focusing on everything that's going wrong it's a bit on repeat and he says we really need to just block out the images and you know going in to to activate imagination and imagine futures and imagine and start dreaming again At the same time as a filmmaker and visual artist you obviously work with images but it brings me back then to that idea of haptic image which is an image that is bringing us back in touch with our bodies and you brought to my attention a beautiful essay called The Eyes of the Skin written by Juhani Palazma I hope I have pronounced this right and In this essay he looks at architecture and idea of touching the spaces with the skin of our eyes and also creating spaces that are attuned to our bodies to our visceral experiences and he writes something beautiful in it he says the touch is the matter of the senses the skin is the oldest and the most sensitive of our organs our first medium of communication the touch is the parent of our eyes ears nose and mouth i just love this sentence the touch is the mother of the senses has there been a single sentence in your life that has shifted you profoundly I think there have been many sentences like different ones for different times in my life but the one that's kind of been hanging out with me for a while I think it's a Taoist philosophy if you want to become full let yourself be empty if you want to be reborn let yourself die for me that's all about the cycles of life like the cycles of life that can be from birth to death but also the cycle of life that goes from n- night to day it can be that short as well and just kind of clearing the channels regularly so you can be a vessel how do you make yourself empty at the end of the day <laughs> or beginning of the day i think it's easier at the beginning of the day waking up and staying calm and clear 
Yeah, I think my cat is my huge teacher there. <laughs> Just waking up and morning ritual of washing face, brushing teeth, physical cultivation, making a tea, and then sitting down to quietly drink that tea with my cat. <laughs> sometimes I like to journal, sometimes no. Sometimes it's just staring out the window as I watch the birds and the plants move through the wind. Mm. So that's probably a really foundational way to help make sure that my day is clear. And then you said that dance is also important, that dance helps you write. Yeah, <laughs> strangely. I think it just, on a physical level, it just shifts some energy You know, writing is very theoretical. It can be quite heady and you start getting stuck in the ideas of it and going off on, you know, different tangents and this. And there's just so much with ideas. It's like, oh, how do I carve this into something really simple and clear? So dance is a, is a way of just, you know, offloading all that extra nervous energy that comes with writing for me. I wish writing was as um, spacious as making a film, but it's not. <laughs> It's almost like spinning five plates. You, you have multiple threads that you have to look after at any given time. So dancing just kind of brings me back to the body, offloads the extra nervous energy and I can come back. It's almost like coming back to a clean slate and picking up exactly the idea that I need to focus on. When you are developing a project, do you hold a diary? Do you buy a new notepad for each new project? No, I have thought about doing that. Hopefully because I heard a podcast about Beethoven <laughs> and he had a box for every piece of work or opus that he worked on and he kept all the ideas in compartmentalized boxes. So even if he didn't finish it, when he'd come back, he'd just open this box and everything was there for him. I just keep a diary regularly and that traverses any project. So it's kind of, it's more like a chronological diary that I keep. Do you go back to reading mm. what you wrote? Yeah. Do you have something <laughs> yeah. to share? Um, I don't know if I have something to share, but I've actually brought them with me today, like two of the, the diaries that I, that I just keep and write into. I write ideas, I write quotes, I write inspirations from teachers or workshops that I've attended and been to. Um, sometimes I write lists of things I want to do or activate over the next couple of years. And how often do you go back and read the whole thing? Depends when, you know, some, some periods you're really busy and you don't have time, but sometimes when I've got a break... That's when I do start pulling them out and going through because I'm like, I know there's something I wrote in here that I need to reread again. There might be the genesis to another art idea or an art idea that I had three years ago that just seemed really non-effectual, might make sense to me more now. Talking about ideas, we started this conversation with how ideas come to you. How do they commonly come to you? Are there particular spaces that you get more inspired in or moments of the year or a day or your life mm. where they are more likely to appear? It's definitely when I'm, I've noticed patterns when I'm out in nature and I make time to be out in the natural world um, and really resonate with it. So I start meditating a lot more. Um, I'm less goal-oriented. I, I take time to just sit on the land when I can um, and meditate out there and just, you know, try to resonate and feel what comes to me. So that's a lot of where I get my inspiration. Other ideas that I get come, <laughs> yeah, once a year or twice a year, I like to do uh, some kind of form of psychotherapy where I, you know, I do a workshop or something that I feel like peels the layers back of conditioning, whether they're sociocultural, familial, political, whatever. And every time I do a workshop like this, it's, all, it's almost like in the weeks that follow, things start to happen and, again, I get some new ideas. Or when I'm sick, strangely, you know, you're kind of on house, under house arrest and in that deathly darkness of nothingness, that something gets reborn. I have a friend who calls it the fertile void. Mm. So, yeah, those probably are the three places. And, of course, dance, dance workshops too. Mm. Things, those are the four things that are the strongest impetus for my work and ideas. And when do you feel, when do you start feeling in this process that it's safe to share an idea with someone else? Mm, to, to give it to the world? 
I think with the Oranox Anima, that was, I, you know, it was, it was ready. It had an exhibition ready for it and the collaborators, everything just seemed to flow. I didn't really have to push for that one to happen. I think up until about January this year, I had a lot of, um, I wouldn't say shame, but I was a bit embarrassed about saying I wanted to make a science fiction dance film. Um, and I thought if I don't say it, it's never going to happen. So I think for me, part of voicing that and articulating that has helped put the foundations or getting me ready to put foundations into place to, you know, commit to this journey because it's going to be a long one. Yeah, so I think sometimes it's about just kind of going with what is there, flowing with what's in front of you, and other times, you know, if you do have a really, what I think, I think it's a far out idea. Um, I just, I actually have to have the conviction and belief in it yeah. and, yeah, project it out there and see what support I can get. I'm also asking because ideas are such a precious, fragile things and there is only a certain time and they're ready to mm. be given to other people and trusted. And that brings me back to these collaborators and people like Catherine Pui, someone you obviously feel like you can entrust your ideas to and somebody whose opinion you value and mm. who is on the same idea path as you? Most definitely. Catherine Puey and I, we have a very, very similar aesthetic and we're both grateful that we've connected. A lot of our aesthetic and our ideas is very primal and very, it's unspoken. And we, we understand each other without having to say a lot and that's also very exciting for me yeah there's a, there's a huge safety with her but it's also I feel sometimes taking a risk and putting the ideas out there means dialogue dialogue that can help shape it you know and dialogue that can help you articulate the idea better because you know saying something's abstract as a science fiction dance film and people, people thinking what and I'm thinking what like what is going to happen so possibly by sharing it even though I'm not ready to might provoke a series of questions that will help me craft what I need to do and how I need to do it. Mm -hmm. So I guess with age, I'm learning not to be so precious about them. Yeah. yeah, not to take anything really personally and just know that it's a process and I'm merely a conduit. I'm merely a channel for this work. That's how I feel. It's not my work. It's a work and I'm just a vehicle to help it materialise. If there was a single question about Oranox Anima you would like to be asked, what would it be? Mm. <laughs> the editing process, um, how that all comes together. Because it feels like a lot happens out in the space, in the environment, with the dance, and then um, again it's another world editing. So... I mean, I was able to sit down for close to 16 hours every day for a few days, I think, while I edited that, and it wasn't a challenge. It felt it was something quite magical about working on this and creating this story and sewing it together, uh, stitching it. Yeah, I because it helps me understand what was going on. You know, I, I, I thought, I don't know, I couldn't understand why I could sit at the computer for that long and just edit until I had what I was happy with. How do you explain it to yourself now? What was going on? Why was it so easy? It wasn't easy. It was just easy to be there with it. You know, I, I, was, I was in that place of flow, probably. Um, you know, being at a computer for me is really difficult. I'm trying to be off the computer as much as I can. But the editing of Oranox Anima was a very meditative experience. It felt very magical. I could have just kept working on this one. Again, it's another world, you know, without my dancers, but with my dancers, um, without them in the physical material, but I still have them. And I can, but it's actually kind of disturbing sometimes because then you think I can do anything I want here. That's that connection between humanity and technology. Mm, yeah. There, <laughs> between live bodies and bodies and screen. Exactly. Yeah, true. And I have spoken to Kat, who um, 
talked about for many years she felt like just a body you know people would ask her to come and dance come and perform come and be filmed come and be photographed and she had no authorship over these images there was a world of, like of images of her floating out there that she had no control over and that kind of got me thinking when she said you know like what is it like to be just a body when for me it's just a, an author or a film editor you know how do do I own these bodies do I you know or do I have to be conscious to pay respect to how I portray them and how I honor what we did out in the dunes that day. But again, so many things can change, you know, just the order, the sequence shifts can change a whole story. The way editing and transitions are done can change a whole story. Would you say that there is a narrative to Oranok cinema? Definitely. Yeah, I'd like to make it feel that there isn't, but I feel that there is and Um, it might not make sense, but it feels like when I edit it, there's a narrative that's going on in my head, definitely. <laughs> um, Would this, you like to share it? This one feels very much about journeys. Um, I think at the time in 2016, I'd been to Morocco. Uh, I was a desert obsessed. I still am desert obsessed. And I'd listened to a podcast at the time where they referenced a book called In the Dust of This Planet. And I thought, ah, oh, this is up my alley. I found the book and I was very nonplussed by it at all. <laughs> But there was this idea of moving out into the desert and becoming a mystic. I really loved this idea because I was becoming quite disillusioned with life in the metropolis, the cities and the way we were constructing our futures. So I feel this work is connected to that dream about being a mystic out in the desert and learning pathways back to the body, back to space, back to life cycles and death cycles. So, it, yeah, it could have been like the metaphysical journey back to that or into that and trying to keep a, a piece of me or put a piece of me in this desire out in the desert or the sand dunes. I also feel chorus work is very powerful. Like when one body's out there, it's something, but when many bodies out there, something I can't quite put my finger on, I can't quite articulate it, There's, it's definitely more powerful. Talking about chorus work, another project of yours that you have mentioned to me, and I hope it's okay to share it, uh, is that you want to make a film with a large chorus of women. I would love you to do that. I would love to be a part of it if you do it. I would love to have you as a part of it. It would be awesome. What is it going to be? How are you envisioning it? I think it will be the third part, the trilogy, in the dunes. I'd like to finish this one in the dunes. Um, yeah, it would be great to get as many bodies as I can. Um, I'm interested in synchronized movement. I feel when I watch Western dance now, we've lost a lot of that. Um, I mean, there's benefits, you know, and beauty in each, but there's that Chinese dance theatre company called The Dance, the Tao Theatre Company, and they have a synchronicity that's just, it's mind-blowing. And so, I mean, I mean, this also takes time to get, and that's why I envisaged in the first place having three days out there in the dunes to build that resonance, to build that frequency where everyone kind of drops into this collective harmony, this unspoken resonance i think that's really important to have and we're not working enough with that uh, in my own performance history and training i've i've had times like that i've even had it through sports as well where everyone just drops into this moment and movement of perfect synchronization and it's really unconscious it feels like something bigger than us um and that's only achievable with many other people and i think there's also a power of a chorus of female bodies coming together to bring this kind of, this, this mother matriarch, this chorus <laughs> um, collective of bodies that kind of make up one bigger body and see what comes out of that. Mm. And within the mother nature. True, yeah, mm. definitely. Talking about harmony and synchronicity, what role does beauty play in your work? Mm. And I'm asking this question because beauty has become such a contested term and idea and, you know, lots of artists have started to shy away from beauty. I'm glad you asked this question. I think, a lot, I think that's been happening for a long time. I struggled even 
with this at university. I felt everyone was trying to develop conceptual strengths and it was it, it meant compromising aesthetics and I really love beautiful things. Here I go, I'm saying this publicly now, but you know, when I see art, art for me as a child, as a teenager, as a young 20-something was a transcendental experience. It's what I went to see to take me away from my mundane life. I'm not saying that the mundane doesn't have a place. It does. There's beauty, there's miracles, there's all sorts of wonder and gold there, but it's boring. You know, it's, it is. It's ho-hum. So art for me was my spirituality. It was my religion. And so when I go to an art space or an event, I don't want to see a picture of a corner of a room with a light switch. I just, you know, this does absolutely nothing for me. It, I feel like I'm having my time wasted. You know, I could just be sitting at home. I think artists have a duty not to just comment on what's going on, not to just point out what's going on. As artists, don't we have a responsibility and a duty to help shift, to co-author our futures, to try and activate something somewhere that might, you know, cause us to grow in a better way? And beauty for me has been part of those transcendental experiences. I don't think all art needs to be beautiful. There's been some that aren't and they're still equally as moving, but I think it's a specific and deliberate choice for what it is that's been made or presented. But something that's moving is by itself beautiful. Exactly. Because I'm always questioning as well, what, how do we define beauty? Mm. Ideas can be beautiful. Totally. Beauty doesn't have to have even a physical form. Interactions with people can be beautiful. It's something, I think, moving is a good description of what is beautiful, something that affects you. So true. It is. It's affectation. It's being moved inside, being moved to a deeper place within yourself, being moved to feel connected, understood, expansive, expanded in this lifetime. Yeah, these are all kind of non-tangible experiences or things that you know can't be articulated easily yeah and then on the other hand some physical things could be aesthetically pleasing and beautiful but you feel completely detached from them and empty you know, it's maybe even connected to that voyeuristic gaze mm. yeah they do they can feel quite empty and vacuous it's it's a good question I mean, I, I still am quite sensitive to aesthetics. You know, I think um, even when you look at Bhutto and Japanese, the Japanese always have a sense of re refined, presented aesthetic. You know, even when they're not trying, it's just there. <laughs> so I do appreciate that. I think you can work quite simply. There's a beauty in simplicity and minimalism. The thing that I buck up against is when they purposely try to make it, you know, ugly or just mundane or you know brutal I yeah it just doesn't vibe with my <laughs> my being in connection to Japanese aesthetic it's making me think back towards your interest in slowing down there is something about slowing down in the process of making things in order to become that vessel that creates something beautiful or possibly just even aware of where that beauty is in the moment and when I was walking around Tokyo, I found, um, you know, you'd walk, you'd get to the lights. And as a Westerner, I'd, I'd press the button. I'd be like, come on, let's go, you know, looking for a way. But I noticed all the Japanese people around me would just come to a halt. <laughs> they would walk and stop and just wait for the light to change. It's almost like taking that moment in rather than searching and you're looking and going, come on, I've got to go. It was, yes, we live busy lives, but here I am for 45 seconds. Just drop into that. Where are you at in your art practice at the moment? Are you at that traffic light, just <laughs> stopping and having a bit of a halt? I am having a bit of a halt, yeah. So it's starting to, uh, yeah, something's starting to, to boil again. Um, but that halt has also been because of other life reasons. So you know, family, personal stuff that's come up and it has slowed me down. But grateful for that as well because, you know, as my friend Alex calls it, the fertile void. And new ideas are coming out of yeah. that. Roseanne Cash was asked a question mm. whether she always writes songs. And she answered, I don't write all the time, but I'm always a writer. Mm. Yeah. You're always being the artist or being the non-doer and the doer. Or, yeah, any given time. But 
you're not necessarily activating or creating a piece or working to a deadline. Yeah, it's very true. You're still creating it, it's just that it's in your bomb, it's growing. Incubating. Incubating yeah. it, yeah, it's, that's exactly it. And it's actually almost the, the most important part of the whole cycle. Mm. That seems like the time of, it is a time of non-action, but it's actually the time of growth. Absolutely. Yeah. Another friend of mine who is a writer and I asked her whether she's creating something at the moment and she replied, no, I'm growing. Mm. It was quite a struggle for a long time because you'd finish a project and then like, oof, nothing. You'd pass out for like two, three, four weeks and you'd be like, what's next? What am I going to do? And, you know, you'd go into this post-massive production or work burnout and drop and you felt like you lost identity when you weren't producing or creating so my friend Alex who did say it's the fertile void he's a psychotherapist so I have yeah I have much to be grateful for it was that specific conversation that created a new life lesson for me that it is a fertile void when you just give in to that that emptiness that darkness the nothingness the next you know the genesis for the next idea will emerge and it will emerge quite gracefully as well. It doesn't have to be like this aha moment or, you know, this savage pop out into the world. It can be quite gentle and gradual too and subtle. Thank you for listening to Dance Cinema Podcast, where we feature conversations with the makers of dance films and videos. From directors to dancers, cinematographers to editors, costume to sound designers. To watch their videos, head to dancecinema.org. This podcast was recorded and produced on the Gadigal land of Eora Nation, traditional custodians of the land on which we live work and dance. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and future. Dance Cinema Jingle was produced by Trevor Brown. I also had one more quote I forgot to include. You can you can include it now. Um it was one of my dance teachers that I did one workshop with in Body Weather called Charles Coronejo, and this was one of the most life-changing workshops I've ever done. But I had, I had to look through my books this morning just to get it. And he said, at the edges of society is where you get oscillations in the avant-garde. What does he mean by that? Um, in order to find those breaking edge, uh, cutting edge, things in in arts or anything it's almost like someone that's too well adjusted or too well enmeshed in society isn't capable of producing those ideas isn't capable of you know what I mean you have to sometimes go outside to the edge of society in order to to find or create really unusual things it's like stepping back in order to see Mm, quite possibly which is Another thing in connection to you opting for long shots and wide shots, it's like mm. that's... Um, the bigger picture stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but there's all sorts of interesting people living on the edge, you know, rather than right in the, the hub or the centre. I think they're equally important, but the ones that are on the edge, is sometimes you do find the contrasting views of what's going on because they are they've stepped back in order to see it rather than be in it some of them have stepped back because they couldn't be in it as well perhaps yeah it's too Um, challenging yeah and historically we have been ascribing the idea of madness to them Mm. but then you could also question what do we mean by madness Those have been often the people who have actually helped humanity progress into a new direction that we yet 
being so close seen cannot see exactly but i have actually already gone to those edges because they are expanding the edges they are expanding those edges for us yeah